Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Moji Karimi, CEO and co-founder of Simvida Factory. Simvida Factory is a company following many paths to produce carbon-negative products through synthetic biology. The most recent example was the announcement made just a few weeks ago about the new partnership between United Oxy Low Carbon Ventures and Simvita. They are turning carbon dioxide into sustainable aviation fuel. We could spend all day talking about the project, but there is so much more I want to cover. So we're going to jump in at the beginning of the story. So Moji, thank you for joining me today on the show. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and introduce us to Simvita Factory. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate this. Um, so, yeah, Moji, I'm a co-founder at Simvita Factory. I started off in the oil and gas industry, petroleum engineer by background. I worked at a company called Tesco and then moved on to Weatherford, where I worked in application engineering and then into product line mostly for commercialization of drilling technology um you know as i did that a few years i got more interested in startups and entrepreneurship uh, had an opportunity to join a company that uh, wanted to commercialize dna sequencing in oil and gas i thought that was really interesting because i couldn't see how like what does dna sequencing has to do with oil and gas so i ended up joining them to find out and you know, we were looking at DNA of microbes in the oil and rock and water and building this subsurface maps, kind of, if you imagine, 23andMe for the subsurface. And that taught me about biotech because our main investor was a company called Illumina that is responsible for, you know, lowering the cost of DNA sequencing. Uh, as that was happening, I started talking more with now my co-founder and our CTO, Tara, who is also my sister because she comes from the biotech industry and you know through a lot of you know organic discussions and dinners and, and such we arrived at the idea for some beta uh, to basically mimic you know a natural process such as photosynthesis and use the tools from uh, biotech for conversion of co2 into other materials so happy to tell you more about all of that but that was kind of a bit of my background and the origin story of Samira. Thank you for that. And I am fascinated with this idea of CO2 utilization, mimicking biology and and finding a way to 
to just do the, I guess, do photosynthesis, but do it in a manufactured way. I'm also fascinated with all of these other aspects that you're talking about, the idea of DNA sequencing and looking at the subsurface and the microbiology and the the microbes down there and what you're doing there. Let's start with the CO2 utilization. So, and we're going to start very basic. At a at the highest level, what is CO2 utilization and what's the kind of spectrum of use cases that are in place today? Sure. Yeah. So, I understand the audience here, you know, is people with kind of subsurface backgrounds in the oil and gas industry and when you think about uh, CO2 sequestration, you know, CO2 enhanced oil recovery, those are not new terms uh, in the industry. A bit of the new element is what today is called CCUS, which stands for Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage. And within those uh, kind of uh, letters, the one that is even more new is the utilization, so CO2 utilization. So there's two aspects to CO2 utilization. Uh, that's the idea of not just sequestering CO2, but using it in some form or fashion. Now, you could either use CO2 as a media to make something else happen. For example, pressurizing the reservoir, changing the miscibility of the oil to produce more oil, and that's the EOR process. That's one aspect of CO2 utilization. But then there is this other aspect to it, which is actually using CO2 as a feedstock, the same way that we use methane, the same way that you know we use carbon monoxide or all these other chemicals. In that scenario, we're actually breaking down the CO2 molecule, reacting it with other feedstocks and making other chemicals at the other end. So that's the idea of CO2 utilization that is non-enhanced or recovery based. And it could make chemicals and fuels. And that's actually the part that, you know, at Sambita we're really focused on. And in terms of the, the method by which you do that conversion, you could do it chemically, you could do it electrochemically, say with catalysts, or you could do it biologically. And this is where there is a lot for us to learn from, you know, 4 billion plus years of development in R&D in nature as we see, you know, through a lot of nature-based solutions for CO2 capture and utilization and photosynthesis. But what we're interested in at Sambita is to build engineered systems, not just be relying on, say, plants and trees or, you know, algae, like in the ocean kind of thing. It's to build this next generation of uh, chemical plants that could use CO2 as a feedstock and through biological conversions, make the same chemicals that we have today but with much lower carbon footprint because the reactions are happening under ambient pressure and temperature because they're nature inspired but on the other hand because you're using co2 as an input not as an sort of emission output the end product could actually be carbon negative sorry for the long pause that's just it is something that it sounds so natural because, frankly, it is natural. You are talking about utilizing the natural biological processes and 
when we utilize CO2 as a feedstock in this situation, adding in the CO2, you are, it, it really is, it's a carbon negative product. And that's a, it's amazing to think about taking that CO2 that we now have that is, is looked at as a, as a negative compound, but you are turning it into a positive feedstock that, that ultimately turns into a, a kind of win-win situation. One, one question, as you talked about utilization of CO2 as this media, and the example you gave was enhanced oil recovery versus CO2 as a feedstock for utilization. So those two different realms, media v- versus feedstock, what is the comparison on the amount of utilization occurring? Like how much of CO2 is going into something like EOR versus CO2 as a feedstock into, into all of these kind of processes that you're talking about and, and other, other types of feedstock-esque properties and uses? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think you know, it kind of varies uh, for EOR, but the number that I've seen thrown around is basically for each barrel of oil that's produced about half a ton of co2 is injected uh, within the co2 eor process and then people do the calculation of okay well if this barrel of oil is then turning to fuels and then uh, you know burn how much is the emissions because of that and that also is within the same rate you know about i think it was 480 kilograms or about half a ton of co2 emitted and that's where that you know carbon neutral kind of uh, oil comes into play. Um, as you see, there was recent announcements from Oxy for production of uh, carbon neutral oil that they had shipped to other companies to use. And that's kind of you know the, the limit of what you could do with EOR. There's not many more um, you know kind of um, parameters there to play with in terms of how much CO2 could be used. It will be more driven by the subsurface processes that goes into the EOR process. But when you talk about using CO2 as a feeder stock, it's a whole world because it's going to depend on what product are you going to make from the CO2. Um, and then as part of a routine process, we do this study to understand um, the carbon efficiency and carbon conversion rate, how much CO2 is used in this process to make you know, a unit of this end product. And because the CO2 is actually used, it's actually broken down, converted into something else, unlike the EOR process. In the EOR process, the oil that you're producing is not made from the CO2 that you injected. The CO2 was just there to push it out, right? But mm-hmm. in the, you know, biochemical reaction, or kind of like what happens inside the plants, right? You have CO2, you have water, you have sunlight, they break down the water and the CO2 and you get glucose. So what used to be this carbon in the CO2 is now within, you know, the six carbons within the glucose. So the same thing happens when we do biochemical reactions and how much of that CO2 is used in the process depends on the end molecule that we're building. But that's where, you know, the potential comes in for making 
this carbon negative chemicals, the part that is the, the challenge and you know really also has to be considered in what is called the life cycle assessment is you also have to consider the energy intake of the reaction and what was the source of that energy. For example, if it was light that was powered by electricity, I mean synthetic light, you need to know, well, was that from renewable source of electricity? Was that from natural gas that was burnt? And both in all of those to then arrive at the end of the day of how much CO2 was used or produced in the making of one ton of this end product. And I guess that is, as we're talking about reducing the CO2 footprint and the, the carbon emissions of these now these synthetic fuels, it is the amount of energy going in. But I guess as we, as you look at what Samvita is doing with biomimicry and synthetic biology utilization, is there, is there an amount of energy still going in or now are we really starting to have nature do this, this chemical reaction work, converting the CO2 into something like a sugar or or some other end product yeah so you kind of hit the nail on the head with why they regardless of this issue that we have now with the climate change why haven't people been using co2 as a feedstock from long time ago right well it's obvious because it's a very happy molecule it doesn't want to react uh, it's not a good it's a really terrible feedstock to, to summarize <laughs> And you need to insert energy in breaking down the bond with the carbon and oxygen to be able then to use the carbon um, for different things. In nature, that energy source is from light, um, you know, in the photosynthesis process. Um, when it comes to building systems that could do CO2 utilization, um, that CO2 could be coming from, uh, sorry, the, the energy intake could be coming from light uh, in the cases that you're using photosynthesizing microbes. In other cases, you could use microbes that you that do CO2 utilization, but they are non-photosynthetic. So in those cases, either you have to be adding another source of energy in form of chemical energy within say sugar, or um, you know, by adding hydrogen to the system, and all of that has to be considered. But CO2 always is going to need energy to be able to react and turn it into something else. Okay. That helps me understand really the, the whole process and kind of the, the high-level viewpoint of, of what's going on. I'm, as you were talking, I was thinking there, and as you just said, there are multiple different avenues here, different different little molecules that that can take CO2 and turn it into something. With the idea of looking at at going net negative carbon, what is what's the I guess the best gains that you see? What is the so far what is the the most carbon in I guess I I don't know how I'm phrasing this question, but what I'm trying to ask is for any given reaction or process, what kind of 
decrease in in carbon can you see occurring through that reaction? Which is the best one out there? Yeah, so that's a very hard question to answer. And and you know why? Here in a second. (laughs) Because it's not just a technical answer. It depends on a few other things. First one is, uh, if you were to just go by, you know, uh, the economical viability of the pathway that is going to use CO2, you're probably better off to make some specialty molecule. For example, some of the products that goes into cosmetics, into um, fragrances, things that you can sell for like thousands of dollars or like kilograms, right? But the issue with those is those are like a small volume. So you're not going to use a lot of CO2 in the process, right? However, if you were to go make, you know, more like intermediate chemicals and fuel, like say something like ethylene or like ethanol, those, the economics per unit is not going to be, because those things are cheap, right? Because you're competing with, you know, natural gas that's produced from the subsurface or like sugar in Brazil that they grow in like massive fields. And it's like a low, you know, uh, cost of feedstock. But they have huge potential in terms of the amount of CO2 that you could utilize in the process. And then adding on top of that, you also have to consider market drivers. There's tax benefits and credits for certain pathways. You may have heard of the uh, you know, uh, low carbon fuel standard in California mm-hmm. that pays for lower carbon fuels if you've used you know, biofeed stocks or CO2 as a feed stock in the process. And you know, you've heard of 45Q that pays also for utilization. Right now it's about $35 per ton of CO2 that was utilized in any given process. So we have to consider all of that and then pair that with the the actual technical work. Like, you know, if if we just look at the science, what makes sense, but in reality, we're not a university, you know, like we have to consider all those things to see what is going to give our, our company the best option. One thing that I think this would be a good time to mention is a lot of times when it comes to CO2 utilization of any kind, the general pushback is, well, this is all great, but we can't use a lot of CO2 in, in this process. And, you know, we're better off just do CO2 demonstration and EOR because we already know we could pump you know, millions of tons of CO2 in the ground per year. As shown, say, Oxy, for example, I think, you know, uh, up to 40 million tons of CO2 per year in the Permian Basin. That's a lot of CO2 to utilize in other processes if you're not just injecting it in the subsurface or for EOR. And one area that we're working on to enable a completely different model uh, allowing for massive use of CO2 as a feedstock is basically to turn the subsurface or a reservoir into a bioreactor where we are going to use the CO2 as a feedstock, but instead of doing it on surface, do it in the subsurface. And that allows for leveraging the favorable pressure and temperature that is already in the subsurface for the nutrients that are already in the subsurface, not needing to, like we talked about, input huge amount of energy in the process, and then turn that CO2 into something else that then you could 
produce. So it's a different model of thinking of the reservoir, not as a place where we just go find the fossil fuels and extract it and sell it, but as a place where we are going to do reaction. As the industry goes through this transformation of thinking about access to forest space as the value of the resource, and that could be used for storage, right? Already, you know, landowners are leasing their assets, not to extract oil, but just to you know, lease the forest space for companies to store CO2. And the next step after that is to actually use that forest space to turn CO2 into other chemicals, uh, you know, for uh, a new reaction for CO2 utilization. That's a really interesting concept and idea. I'd like to I'd like to walk through just one example. You mentioned ethanol. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a good example for us to walk through kind of what the what the surface process would be. And then I'm curious if you've really thought about the subsurface process with this with this underground uh chemical plant, as you put it. If there's a if we could go through both of those and and talk about how bringing everything into the subsurface would ultimately potentially help it scale up to something that is a is a a real viable substantial opportunity for for CO2 utilization and ultimately taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Sure. So actually, uh, I really very much like ethanol, and there is a lot of legacy around ethanol because when we say biofuels, basically we're talking about ethanol, and you know from you know fermentation processes using corn or sugar as a feedstock, getting to that biofuels or ethanol, there is you know established processes around that. I think that even a better example would be ethylene. Which is an active project at Sambita, which allows me to provide even more details about how we're doing it. Um, it's a project that we're doing with Oxy. And Oxy, you know, Oxy Chemash, which is downstream part of Oxy, which to be honest with you, I didn't even know existed until a few years ago because Oxy is known mostly for their upstream, but they also have a very active uh, downstream division. So in that case, you know, Oxy. Basically, uh, when we had that first meeting, the question was, can you make bioethylene from CO2? And my co-founder basically looked into nature and see, is there an example where ethylene is produced naturally in nature? And she found that in bananas. And it turns out that bananas, when they ripen, and a lot of other foods too, they produce ethylene. And this is part of their hormones and kind of signaling the ripening. And that's why, you know, if you have a banana on the counter that's ripening, it's going to make everything else ripen fast because it's going to continue to produce ethylene. And this has been a known fact, even in produce, you know, stores in the cold room, they have ethylene sensors, they inject ethylene if they want things to ripen faster, to put them on the shelf faster, it allows companies to pick up, say, bananas when they're green and ship them around the world and have access to how fast they want that to, to ripen or not, right? So I look at that and, you know, I think that's pretty cool. But for my co-founder, she looks at that and she's already thinking about, well, what gene is responsible for the enzyme 
that is making this, you know, ethylene. And because now we have access to all these really inexpensive tools from DNA sequencing, we know the genome of banana, and we know the line of DNA code, ATCG, that is responsible for making that enzyme that is making ethylene. So what we did, you know, we took the gene for ethylene-forming enzyme and we engineered it in a microbe that is using CO2 as a feedstock. So now that microbe is reprogrammed to make ethylene using CO2 as a feedstock. So we did that. That was the first phase of this study. But that's not enough because it's like, well, how is this going to turn into a logistical process? And that's where we go through this scale-up process. Initially, in you know, bioreactors, size of a test tube, then you go to one liter, then you go to 10 liters, then you go to 100 liters. And what we're doing now is that at 1,000 liters. And every time you're getting data from, okay, how much ethylene are we producing? How much of the CO2 are we using? What's the energy intake of the reaction? Um, and based on what we've done today, you know, going from microbes to chemical engineering, building back up to process engineering, and then eventually having the Aspen model for what would a plant look like that works off of these microbes. That plant, a single one of those plants, could utilize about 1.7 million tons of CO2 per year to produce 1 billion pounds of bioethylene per year. And once Oxy builds that first plant, then they will start licensing it to all these other companies. And that is going to add up to amount of CO2 that's utilized. So the vision that we have at Zambita is to ramp up to one gigaton of CO2 utilized by 2050. But that's just, you know, the ethylene is just one pathway that's included in that one gigaton. And, you know, there's other pathways also including of uh, you know the pathways in the subsurface or subsurface carbon neutralization that would contribute to that number. So that that process specifically, is there a way to move that ethylene production into the subsurface to ramp up that number, or is that a completely different path, a different different microbe and different chemical molecule? I think it's a, it will definitely be a different pathway, different microbes, but I think it's possible. And part of that is, I didn't know that right now, one of the most economical ways to store ethylene is actually in the subsurface. You know, <laughs> like, I think for people like myself coming from upstream, we have known about you know, CO2 sequestration, but the intention there is not to bring the CO2 back up. It's just actually, is to make sure it doesn't come back up and doesn't leak, right? But in the downstream, you know, this is storing of gases in the subsurface, whether if it's in the salt domes or caverns or the depleted reservoirs, is pretty established, you know? And so to go a step beyond that and say, can we actually make the chemical in the subsurface is not too crazy. It's just having that understanding of what are the microbes 
that could enable that reaction? And what is the right food that they need so that we could have more control over the rate of that reaction? And do we need to make some modifications to those microbes? The other reason that I think that's possible is, and it's kind of crazy, but this is how we got the oil and gas that we have in the first place. I mean, think about it. Why do we call it natural gas? Because it's produced naturally. There are microbes in the subsurface called methanogens. Methanogens means they generate methane. That's how we have methane. These are the same microbes that are in anaerobic digestion. These are the same microbes that are inside the belly of a cow. You know, going from organic matter to methane. And these are the same microbes, but it's kind of strange that, say, an actual gas company in the upstream, we know very little about this, like, tiny engines of our end product. So that's one example of what exists, but then you could add to it. And we have one other pathway that I'm happy to talk to for gold hydrogen, which I think is going to be where, you know, the most viable pathway of doing this in the subsurface is going to be for production of hydrogen uh, using oil as a feedstock. But the whole category of doing reactions in the subsurface, I think is a very unique opportunity for the oil and gas industry to reinvent itself, you know, as we go through energy transition as a way to continue to provide the products that the world needs, but doing it in a much more sustainable way. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the the idea for gold hydrogen. And and I guess it you alluded there that oil is the is the feedstock for that gold hydrogen. Let's talk about that a little bit because everybody right now is interested in hydrogen and especially the idea of gold hydrogen. Some people I guess call it white hydrogen. The idea that there is this hydrogen that is carbon negative, or in some cases, naturally occurring. I'm really curious about about what your ideas are and where you're pursuing that. Yeah, okay, so let me, let me provide more context here. Let's start with the definition. Gold hydrogen is hydrogen that's produced biologically and in the subsurface. So you need to have both parameters. And the way that we came up with this idea was another project that we had for a comparable concept that is called underground biomethanation. So that's the idea to make methane in the subsurface and use CO2 as a feedstock. It's best fit for places where an operator is producing natural gas, but they also are producing, you know, 10, 20% CO2 along with that natural gas. And what happens is they have to deal with that on surface, right? Otherwise, they have to write it as part of their emission. And the way that they could deal with that on surface is as part of the gas processing, they have to separate that from the methane so that their methane is like, you know, uh, pipeline ready, right? And then they have to re-inject that CO2 back in the ground or utilize it in some other way. That's how you could deal with it on surface. Now, the idea is, Hey, what if you deal with this in the subsurface? You know, so that right off the bat, you know, instead of 80% methane, you get 85, 90, 95% methane. On one hand, you have more revenue. On the other hand, you have less emissions. That sounds great, right? 
So the way that you could do it in a subsurface is that process of underground biomethanation. We had a project to do that. And basically the project involves using the carbon in CO2 uh, for uh, you know, specific microbes to turn that into methane. What you need to also have in that process is a source of hydrogen because there is no hydrogen in CO2, right? So what people have been doing is to inject hydrogen in the subsurface along with the CO2 that is already there or with the CO2 that they're injecting and then you know, run this by biochemical reactions through subsurface microbes to turn that into methane, right? When we looked at that, it just didn't make sense to us. If you already have hydrogen, why would you want to inject it in the subsurface than to make methane? Especially yeah. if you had used methane to make that hydrogen in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> or even if it was green hydrogen, right? So then we said, okay, how do we solve this? We said, what if we could actually make hydrogen in the subsurface? You know? So we came up with a pathway for other a different set of microbes that could use oil as their food, ferment it, and produce hydrogen. So then we said, okay, now we could use this hydrogen next to the CO2 and make methane. But then we're like, wait a minute. If we're making hydrogen, who cares about the methane? Let's just stop here and just make hydrogen and produce the hydrogen. So that's, that's how both hydrogen was born, you know, in really isolating that unique pathway. And the idea is to go to assets where we still have, you know, 10, 20, 25% of unrecovered oil and, you know, use that as a feedstock for the microbes that sometimes already exist in that natural system or introduce them to the system and provide them the right nutrient to activate the reactions of interest for us, which is the production of uh, biohydrogen. So that, you know, was kind of structured into what gold hydrogen is today, which we launched about two, two months ago or so, and actively doing now, uh, on one hand, de-risking, in the lab scale and planning for the field trial, which is coming up in the next few months. The way that we'll do that is pretty simple, actually. We, it's more like a half and puff style. In a conventional well, depleted uh, you know, oil, we just inject the cocktail of uh, some beta. We shut in the well, wait for a week, reopen it, and then have a gas chromatography on surface to see how much hydrogen we have produced. We've already done that successfully, both in bottle tests and in sand pack tests. And now we're getting ready to do core testing. And right after that, we're going to do the uh, single well half and puff. And then right after that, we'll do more of a water flooding uh, style, which is the commercial pathway for this um, in a depleted reservoir. And the beauty of it is because it's depleted and work has been done there, we already know all the subsurface connectivities, the model capacity, pressures, and everything else. So it's a different way to give this old assets a new life and for oil and gas to be able to play a proactive role in the hydrogen economy as opposed to being limited to just doing the carbon capture and the storage parts 
of the back end of gray hydrogen or what is called you know blue hydrogen today yeah that's really exciting and a a very intuitive idea to to basically make a way to continue producing energy and i like the idea that this is a way to increase that that recovery factor of those existing existing assets that have already been developed and produced and we know as you point out we know the reservoir characteristics so we know what we're going to get and what we should be able to get from there with your tests that you've already performed and with the with the scale up i'm thinking about all of those biochemical processes and and way back when when i was in chemistry and biology some of those were endothermic reactions some of those were exothermic reactions either giving off heat or giving or or bringing in heat some of them were were producing steam here you're producing hydrogen from these i guess the this is a long-winded intro to a question of how are these biochemical processes going to ultimately impact the reservoir is that something that you are actively thinking about and concerned with? Um, yes. And it's actually a very complex problem, as you mentioned, because, you know, reservoir has a very, you know, thriving biology. There's many types of different microbes there activating different kind of reactions. Once you introduce, let's say, a nutrient or source of food, all these microbes are going to fight all the source of food, react in different ways. I think in the oil and gas industry, everyone has a tangible experience with that from, you know, uh, sulfate-reducing bacteria, SRBs, that produce H2S, right? They could cause corrosion. Mm -hmm. And that's why, not just from the safety point of view, but for corrosion, you know, induced, a microbial induced, uh, induced uh, corrosion. And that's why we have all these biocides that we pump. But in this case, we're saying, okay, what about the good microbes? Are the good microbes there that we could really activate? And in that secret cocktail, can we also include inhibitor to block the reactions that we don't want? Take the food away from the bad microbes, for example, that they couldn't thrive. But at the end of the day, the scientific way of doing it is to collect samples from a reservoir that we want to do this test, do the microbial characterization for what is there right now, and then as we do the testing, we start to do the modeling, but the modeling is not just you know uh, geological parameters. It's a biogeochemical modeling that should also include the you know biochemical reactions that are going to happen. And that doesn't exist today. You know, that, that's not a module in CMG, you know, or Petrel. <laughs> but that's what we're building. You know, we, we have one of our partners who specializes in, you know, this biological and biogeochemical reaction modeling that has been done more extensively, say, in the mining industry, in the environmental microbiology industry for different applications. We're bringing that here into the subsurface. And that's really the only way to get a good handle on this 
And then as we do the testing, we watch for that both in the lab scale and in the field scale for the overall balance of the system. That's that's good to know and and understanding it it very is it it is very similar to any type of reservoir production here having that that live chemical plant in the subsurface now you just have to also be monitoring the actual chemical processes and what's what's you're putting into the injection well to then get out of your production well what the chemical reaction is and what that end product is and a a real time reservoir monitoring and modeling to to really optimize that production it's it's a very fascinating idea coming from coming from the the reservoir modeling and 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 characterization world that's it's fascinating to add another level of complexity to that that you're doing now with the what I'll what I'll call the live reservoir. Mm-hmm. One question that that I have been thinking about this whole time, and I'm I'm going to date myself a little bit here. When I kind of started in my undergrad back in the the 2000s, there was already lots of buzz around the idea of replicating photosynthesis and doing that in a way to combat climate change and to be producing synthetic fuels. And now approximately 20 years later, from my perspective, everything you're talking about is is completely new. But it seems like you you and your company are the farthest along. So I guess my question is what is it that y'all are doing differently and and what kind of what kind of major advances have been made that that are making this possible and and on top of that one more question why why else should we really be getting excited about this if it's been 20 years and and very very slow growth versus how y'all are tackling this problem yeah that's a fair question i think i agree with you there is kind of like a graveyard of companies that we're really promoting, you know, the biofuels in some cases. You know, for example, the most famous one is a company called Jewel Unlimited for like that photosynthetic uh, pathway. Uh, and, you know, initially, actually, when we were looking at doing this, a lot of the research that was coming up when we typed in artificial photosynthesis, it was all just around fuels, like how to make fuels, you know. But for us, we started off actually from the classic photosynthetic reaction going from CO2 and water to sugar. And then, you know, the first project we had was bioethylene. And then from there, eventually now we're doing things like sustainable aviation fuel or like biogas, you know, which are in the fuels category. But when you compare, you know, now and 20 years ago, there's a few things that has changed, enabling us to think about these ideas again. The very important one is synthetic biology. Synthetic biology was nowhere close to what it is today, you know, 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago, you know, the Human Genome Project cost us, you know, billions of dollars, you know, many years to mm. do one genome. And now you could send, you could spit in a vial and for your dog, send it to the lab and get the results back 
you know, in a week for $100. So that has enabled a whole set of tools for really doing massive improvements in the type of engineering that's done on the microbes. We've also massively increased our ability for engineering of the microbes. Because DNA sequencing is a, is a tool, but then synthetic biology is the collection of tools used for genetic engineering, including, for example, CRISPR, that also was not a thing 20 years ago and was not used in those methods. So there is, within the technology itself, a lot of improvements. You know, synthetic biology, um, you could go now to Burger King and buy an impossible water that you would eat and not realize that this is not meat. Well, that's made with synthetic biology. You know, they took the gene um, for him from soy plant, engineered it into yeast that makes the red molecule and mix it with a bunch of plant proteins, and they have that. The reason I say that, that's an example of scaled synthetic biology. That would have cost, you know, thousands of dollars per pound of that, you know, meat that made that way, you know, a few years ago. But now it's getting to become cost competitive and it's going to actually become much cheaper than say meat from cattle in a few years. So we're riding, you know, that wave of cost drop in synthetic biology that is helping with that. Then you have the changes in the market. Before, yes, there was this vision for biofuels and nature inspired, but we did not have this push from ESG investors and companies you know, current footprint being measured. Like you might have seen this uh, proposal from SEC that basically is going to integrate carbon accounting into, you know, status quo accounting. So for public companies, all of that is pushing the society in the direction that would have the need for better solutions, um, you know, lower carbon solutions. But at the end of this, you know, it's the ability of the technology to deliver that matters, you know, and there's been improvements there, uh, both also in terms of the scale up. There's more examples of companies having done this. EPCs are more experienced because they've been burned by what to do, what not to do. And we're leveraging all of that. Not to say that it's all figured out. It still is very difficult to do the scale up. It doesn't exist still today. You know, we still have to build it. but our approach is basically we're going to do the best that we can for the obvious pathway, but we're also going to introduce new pathways alongside of that. For example, we're working with microbes that use CO2, but they're non-photosynthetic. You know, they could use hydrogen, for example. And you could get the hydrogen from different sources. And at some point, that could be, maybe it could be gold hydrogen. Maybe that could be a, a different source of low carbon footprint and cheaper hydrogen to be mixed with the CO2 to make all kinds of fuels, even though it's not necessarily, you know, a photosynthetic path. Um, so collectively, there is a lot more tools and momentum and market demand for it. It still doesn't mean that it's going to be successful just because of that. You know, we're going to find out in the next kind of three to five to 10 years, but we're certainly going to try. That makes a lot more sense. And you're right. There's a lot of, of, I would call them 
tangential improvements in understanding of of biology in ways to analyze and modify synthesize biology and it seems like all of those things that were were not necessarily in the energy industry have been brought in either by some vita or or by predecessors to your company that that have now really coalesced into what y'all are doing that that is making a a a very exciting and very promising whole package to produce these synthetic really sounds like synthetic CO2 carbon negative products that that are ultimately they really make they will make an impact in the future. You know, I, I just wanted to mention, I think what I just can't wait to see kind of how the cards play out is whether the oil and gas industry is going to take this attitude of we're going to keep doing what we're doing and see kind of where we end up. Or, you know, like you said, thinking about we started off as an oil and gas company, but we're in the energy business. We're in the business of providing the energy and materials that the world needs. And yes, maybe before we got it from the subsurface because it was there. Now we make it from CO2. Now we're involved in solar and wind and, and different variety of, of different pathways, you know, and within those set of options, the part that I'm pushing and I hope that the industry would really take on is the type of ideas that leverages the existing infrastructure that the oil and gas industry already has. So if you think about gold hydrogen, for example, you still are going to need petroleum engineers, drilling engineers, production engineers, all of that. But basically they're just, before the oil comes to surface, they're turning it into hydrogen. Whereas, you know, yes, you could invest in wind and, and solar and those things and diversify. But you have to think about what about all the assets that we have right now? And if you think through to 2050, you know, there's a nature paper that came out earlier this year that looked at if we were to stay with the 1.5 degree temperature cap uh, based on the Paris Accord, right? That would mean that 60% of the world's oil and gas on average would be unextractable, you know, to start with. So let's say even if that's like 5%, right? If you're the CEO of an oil and gas company, that should get, make you think, right? Uh, what are we going to do about this? And idea is that adds another option on the table. It's like, hey, what if we turn it from oil and gas into you know, something like hydrogen that is going to have 600% growth by 2050 um, and have that be our product, you know? So I'm hoping that you know we get more leverage around those ideas and CCUS in general. I think as a new way to reinvent the oil and gas industry, we need you know not just incremental improvements, but we we need pretty much like what's the next hydraulic fracturing type idea? <laughs> you know that comes from oil and gas, and this subsurface carbon utilization, I think it could be it. Yep. Yep. And I. I may say it too often or maybe I harp on it, but I completely agree that it 
it is not it is it is energy diversification and revenue diversification for oil and gas companies but i think you you hit it right on the head that it is a mind shift of not just being an oil and gas company but being an energy company and figuring out what are your core competencies that being producing resources from the ground and for the larger companies then having that midstream resource of turning your hydrocarbons into usable products for the end consumer and how can you combine all of those existing core competencies into a way that can ultimately be be leveraged for for a low carbon future and the idea of putting keeping the keeping the carbon in the ground utilizing it as is where is and extracting out the an end usable resource that is low carbon it just it makes so much sense but as you pointed out it it is still on the development road so for for a lot of people it may also be a little scary and maybe a little a little uh, apprehensive to make that jump but i think the the numbers don't lie as you pointed out the the difference between a 60% reduction or keeping the the hydrocarbons in the ground versus 600% growth of an entire industry in hydrogen it it's hard to it's hard to not look it's hard to look at those numbers and not think about how to transition your your production to to a growing part of the energy economy. But I will I'll get off my soapbox now and let's get into the final questions. These are the questions I ask everybody that are a little bit more fun and industry and energy agnostic. The first one being what is the most important book you've ever read? Uh, actually, not much into books. I don't know why, but I just, uh, you know, kind of too impatient. But there is a book that really influenced me. It kind of made me who I am and the way I think about technology in a lot of ways. And that's a book that's called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And the reason that it really resonated with me is because, you know, we're living in a world where there is a lot of just incremental improvement on things, you know. And in the spectrum of humanity, we've had these big jumps at times. And if you go back and do a bit of surgery, that's been, you know, when we had those kind of not incremental, but like a new framework idea. And that really changed everything, you know. and even applying that to the discussion that we had today, you know, that's why I'm saying, yes, you could oil and gas company invest in solar and wind, but what if you could be the pioneer of an entirely new way of making hydrogen, you know, in the subsurface? That's a zero to one type idea of reinventing the oil and gas industry from the ground up, like literally. And so that book, I think, is um, is something that, especially if you know, if anyone is interested in kind of like an entrepreneurship angle, definitely recommend reading. Yep. I like that recommendation, especially because you pointed out you're not that into books, but this one, 
was powerful enough to keep you engaged and to and to have an impact even when you are not a reader. So this is a very good recommendation. So thank you. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? So that's a really tough question. And honestly, I've been thinking about it personally like a lot, given what our company does. I just also just kind of reflecting on the status of how people feel about climate change and the whole thing. And I think it's really complex because what people don't appreciate and I do because I actually work in the oil and gas industry is this is how we've gained this comfort that we have today. You know, it's not like a nice to have. Like that's part of it. And if we want to stop emissions, in some ways that also means stopping progress, stopping, you know, making energy affordable to countries and people who don't even have it. Like their issue is not what kind of energy to use. They're burning wood right now. You know, so who is to say, hey, you guys can't have access to fossil fuels, you have to jump over all that and start with like renewables because you know this developed countries have already consumed their portion, you know, and so when you think about net zero, it's not just about a company or a country, it's about the world or and then how to put all this together into what is the answer? It's really hard because we need to think really holistically about it and yeah, of course 2050 is is the year that is kind of out there as we need to really get a handle on uh, finding that balance you know and even the the overall concept of climate change i think is kind of crazy you know a lot of people think like the economy shouldn't change well it will change if you want people to you know have access to energy and grow and have shelter and food and, and everything else. This is what we've done in developed countries. But, you know, how are we going to, it's almost like it's not climate change. It's like, what is the right balance that collectively we're all okay with, you know, as, as humans, as the species, you know, to continue to grow and maintain the, the population, a bit of a comfortable lifestyle. Maybe say those of us in the U.S. should like slow down, you know, a little bit, conserve energy, and balance things out to those who don't have as much. But at the end of the day, uh, if I was to contribute anything in this whole picture in my life, it's going to be what role can technology play, so that we can kind of solve the problem and kind of have our cake and eat it too. And the way I think about that is. If you if really if you're saying the problem is fossil fuels, okay, well it's not the fossil fuel by itself, it's the emissions that it creates. Actually, you know, if you look at the life life cycle of fossil fuels, all of the emissions is not because of drilling and production, it's when it's burned, right? And so then what is the solution? Well, CCUS is a solution, you know, capture the emissions and reuse it, inject it in the subsurface so that that source of energy becomes emission-free. You know, I think that's an important question and the more more uh, relevant metric to get to as opposed to, you know, getting to the, the net zero because we solve the problem by technology, you know, um, 
at least that's going to give us a sense of control in this situation because I don't think we'll ever get all the countries on the same page. Already, we really, even in the Paris Accord, all this stuff, we don't have representation from those who are affected by this the most, like in Africa and other places. They don't have as many votes as like Europe and US and all these powerful countries on the table, right? Um, so yeah, you, you got me going on this, but I'm not sure, like with the, with the net zero, I think it's a really complex, but the part that I could control is how could technology help create a better world by solving problems, and in this case, emissions from fossil fuels. Yeah, that's a really good point and a really good way to put it that it, in some regards, asking the question, when will we be net zero is not, it, the, the goal there is to make people think, but ultimately thinking about a number 30, 40, 50 years in the future doesn't ultimately drive innovation and it doesn't drive change and it doesn't doesn't necessarily drive carbon to be lowered or really the more important part it doesn't increase our ability as a society to live within the the world as it is today so i think your point of what are you doing to contribute to the technology growth and the betterment of of our societal conditions i think is a is a almost a more important question and also a more important way to look at the this this larger larger problem if you will of climate change or and everything that kind of goes with that but i i will i'll cut myself off there and not not turn this into a big long discussion about climate change we can save that for another day the the last question do, now when you get to ask me a question so do you have a question for me i do actually and i've been thinking about it as we're discussing because i know you've spent a good amount of time subject matter ex expert in geothermal and i'll have this passion also for geothermal as another one of those comparables where the oil and gas industry can really lean into because it would still require a lot of the same skill sets and infrastructure that we already have in oil and gas and partly because i saw that in action from you know when one of my friends team uh latimer went kind of from bhp to stanford to study the whole landscape and then you know started thermal energy with the idea to bring hydraulic factoring as a tool for uh geothermal so i wanted to kind of ask you and, and get your thought and feedback around what role do you think that is going to play as the oil and gas industry is going through this transformation? Yeah. I think geothermal is going to be the base load. It is going to be the foundation of the future energy grid infrastructure. And I say that with, with a few different ideas in mind. There are new innovative EGS designs like the one that that Fervo is coming out with there are other companies out there that are that are doing very very innovative ideas and and different really it all comes down to the well design the fracture design and the interplay between those two and how you get that 
cross-pollination and cross-communication of the wells. So that's all EGS. And then there's ideas to get even deeper and hotter so that you have higher energy density. And that those are those are these moonshot ideas that that if and when they work, those are going to revolutionize geothermal and, and energy in general. And then there's also there's also ideas about how you can take the existing energy, the the resources that we have at the surface, things like intermittent renewables, wind and solar. How can you store those in an ultra long-term duration storage? And I think the answer there is thermal energy storage. This is something that that my company PetroLearn is working on where we are finding ways to basically take take these pervasive resources at the surface that are not the base load energy that we need. So they're not always on. They're kind of weather dependent. If we can take that energy when it's available and store it until we need to use it and we don't have to use it in the next four hours like a regular battery or we don't have to use it in the next day or two like a more expensive long-term battery, then, then in that way, utilizing the earth as this infinite battery that it is through geothermal technologies and really all of this is application of existing oil and gas technologies in a new and innovative way utilizing that is going to give us the opportunity to to make renewable energy penetration significantly deeper than it is right now and and that's really going to give us that opportunity to have a a net zero grid and then i think to to talk about transportation i think that there are there's opportunities like some vita where you are directly making low carbon fuels that are going to make this significant penetration of low carbon transportation really a possibility and i think that's something that that is what i've been thinking about lately with all of the resources and with all the mining that we have to do to pull the the metals out of the ground in order to make lithium ion batteries there it just seems daunting to think how are we going to decarbonize all of that for transportation so i think it's going to be a combination of utilizing the earth as is i.e geothermal so that we can reduce our overall need for mining and then opportunities like utilizing the microbes in the earth which isn't geothermal but in in some regards depending on where you are you do need to know the thermal properties so understanding the thermal reservoir could potentially change maybe even the way y'all are are looking at where to do your your biochemical these live reservoir plants so it's just i i realize i have now gotten on another soapbox so i am going to step off now 
But that was fascinating. And, and I agree there, there could be synergies to explore because you, you alluded earlier to like, what is the, the, the how this reaction is going to generate heat or is it going to need heat? And I think there's a coupling that could be done depending on the temperature range, uh, you know, that the markers could be viable to explore, um, you know, between geothermal and subsurface carbon neutralization. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Moji, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Yeah, just for anyone uh, who would like to learn more about this, uh, you know, please visit our website, which is uh, sometimefactory.com. On gold hydrogen is goldhydrogen.com. It's also hosted on our website. And, you know, within the next few years, we're going to really grow our company and we're going to need a lot of help from passionate scientists and engineers without other backgrounds, oil and gas industry, petrochemicals, you know, process engineering, and then of course in the you know genetic engineering side as well. But for your audience, those who are interested, please uh, stay in touch and reach out to me on LinkedIn. So I have you kind of in, the, in our, this you know awesome people talent pipeline that I maintain uh, for the right time uh, to join our team if you're interested. All right, Moji, thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple actions will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry and keep up to date with the energy industry, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. If you're in the Houston area, go try out the Canon. Mention OGGN and they will give you a free day pass. The Canon is my office when I'm in Houston. And don't forget, it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers, which you should also go check out. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.